built this beautiful new house. And uh, she invites you over to her house for coffee, and you're excited about that because you have been hearing about this house and you want to see this house. And so you, you go over to the house, and it just looks amazing from the outside. And as you walk up the walk, uh, you're expecting the same from the inside. But as you walk in, all of the walls are painted in these bright pastel colors like hot pinks and, and bright mints and sky blues and, and colors like this. And, and you're thinking, why? <laughs> why would you paint your house these colors? You just built this brand new beautiful house and these are the colors you chose to, to pick it. It looks like a cotton candy factory in here. But do you actually say that? Well, not if you have any tact. Uh, instead, you say, wow, wow, what a lovely home you have. What, what bright colors. Uh, I really like the outside. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't say it, of course. You, you just uh, keep your, your mouth closed and you uh, just tell her that it's a beautiful house. And, and after all, it's her house. Uh, she built it, she spent her own money on it, uh, and she's free to paint it any color she wants uh, if it makes her happy. Uh, even if her tastes make you cringe and you wonder how it's possible that you can even be friends uh, with somebody who would choose these colors for the house. Now, to take it a step further, imagine if the house itself could talk. Would the house have any right to say to its owner, why did you paint my walls this color? Well, of course not. Uh, the owner owns the house again and she can paint it whatever color she wants. The house has no right to say, uh, I don't like this color, paint me that color. And this is the point of Paul's passage today as we come into uh, this difficult part of Romans chapter 9. God is sovereign. He is the creator. We are his creatures, and, and he is not unjust uh, to do whatever he wants with his creatures. Uh, and if he chooses some of us for salvation and he passes over others, well, he has purposes in election, and we have no right to question God. Now, throughout chapter 9, we've been dealing with these various objections that Paul anticipated that his readers might ask. If God's people can never be separated from God's love, as we learned about in Romans chapter 8, well, as we come to chapter 9, what about the Jews? Why aren't all the Jews saved if, in fact, God's people cannot be separated from his love? Has the word of God failed? And the answer is no, the word of God has not failed because not all of Israel is Israel. Uh, they're not all among God's elect. So we learn that being a Jew is not what saves, uh, and nor does doing good works save. Because as we uh, learned from G Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob was chosen, Esau was not, before the twins were born. Uh, so it has nothing to do uh, with their heritage or the works that they were done. Uh, that they were going to do. Uh, election depends solely on God's choice. So then the next question Paul asks is, well, is God unjust? And we talked about that one last week. And of course, the answer is no, God is not unjust. He is free uh, to give his mercy to some and not give his mercy to others. Now, every single person who has ever lived uh, deserves condemnation and eternity in hell for our sin because we are all predisposed to be biased, to be enemies against God ever since sin entered the world. We don't want God in our own natural state. So if God chooses to leave some in that condition while changing the hearts of others, is God wrong to do that? No. God is not wrong to do that. Uh, he's within his rights uh, to choose, and it's his love that allows him to save any sinner. 
And that begins us, or brings us to this third objection uh, that Paul is going to deal with in this passage. Uh, why does God blame us? And the objection that Paul anticipates here is, well, if, if God is sovereign, and he is, and, and if God is the one who chooses, well, then how can he blame us? How can he hold us accountable for not believing when he's the one who's pulling the strings? We have no choice or say in this matter. And we're going to find that that's not true either. Uh, God says you have no right to question any more than the house has a say in what color its owner chooses uh, to paint it. So uh, as we come to this passage, we're going to look at uh, 11 verses today. We're going to see that Paul answers this question, uh, why does God blame us, uh, in three different ways, because that's how Paul answers the question. In verses 19 to 21, Paul stressed that we have no right uh, to question God because of who we are compared to who he is. We are mere lumps of clay. And then in verses 22 and 23, Paul pointed out that God, as the sovereign creator of the universe, is within his rights to do what he wants with his own creations for his own purposes. He can appoint some to salvation while passing over others, and he's within his rights to do that. And then in verses 24 to 29, Paul uh, talks about this should not be a surprise to anybody because if they were familiar with their Old Testament scriptures, the prophets Hosea and Isaiah both predicted uh, that God would save only a remnant of the Jews while a large number of Gentiles would experience God's salvation. So the first point, we have no right to question God. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? On the contrary, who are you, foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another object for common use? So we've been talking uh, over the past several weeks about this difficult uh, idea, this concept of God's election. Uh, on the one hand, God is absolutely sovereign. God is the one who chooses. Those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And if you are among God's foreknown, his predestined, then you will be seen all the way through to calling justification and glorification. And so uh, if you're among God's elect, you will be saved, uh, even though not one of us sinners deserves uh, this glory. And at the same time, we're held responsible for our decision. God never takes the blame for the fact that people don't believe. Jesus presented himself over and over again to the scribes uh, and the Pharisees and the people of Israel uh, and some chose him and some rejected him. But J Jesus never gave the people who didn't choose him a pass. He always said uh, that he charged them with the sin of unbelief and then warned them, charged them with the consequences that were going to be theirs as a result of their decision. So uh, God is sovereign on the one hand and we are responsible to choose on the other hand. And of course, Paul knew uh, throughout this chapter 9 that these were going to be difficult concepts for uh, his readers to understand. And so that's why he chose to ask and answer the question here. Why does God blame us? Who resists his will? And so before uh, Paul answered the question, he points out that we have no right to even ask the question. We have no right to ask this question of God. His answer is, who are you, foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to its molder, why did you make me like this? And so 
what Paul was doing here is just emphasizing the vast gulf that exists between God uh, who exists up here and we who exist all the way uh, down here uh, on earth. God is infinite. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's the holy, intelligent creator of the universe. And, and what are we compared to that? Well, we're nothing but a speck. Remember when Moses was interested, uh, he, he saw the burning bush and he went up to the burning bush. He said, I, I will go and I will, I will look upon that bush. And, and when he got there, the voice of God comes to him and says, uh, take off your sandals, Moses, because the place you are standing on is holy ground. Uh, and Moses took off his sandals and he got down and prostrated himself before God because he recognized who he was speaking to. And so uh, we have no right to question God. Uh, God is the creator of the universe. He's the potter. We are the clay. We have no right to tell God uh, what to do with us. And he's decided, he's chosen to make two distinct uh, groups of people from the same lump of clay. And so the clay has no right to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? So you recognize this, this potter and clay metaphor from the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah used it uh, and Isaiah used it a couple of times uh, in the Old Testament uh, with regard to Israel questioning God about its position. Uh, and God said to Israel uh, in chapter 19, verse 16, you turn things upside down when you question God. And that's right. We, we have no right to question God. He's the one who questions us. Uh, we see that in Job, right? Job is questioning God, and then jo finally God comes on the scene and says, uh, Who are you, Job, to question me? Where, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, and Job was silenced by God. In Isaiah 45, 9, uh, God said, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? No, they would not be able to do that. And Paul uh, knew that his readers would understand this metaphor, at least the Jewish ones anyway, who should have been familiar with their Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but you have this potter uh, and clay metaphor, right? And the clay, it's an inanimate object, right? But we as people, we are, we are more than that. Uh, we, God has created us in his image. Uh, and, and that means that we have the ability to reason, uh, to think, uh, to speak, uh, even to argue. Uh, and so that's where we find ourselves oftentimes. Uh, and if we're so bold, we might even question God. And Paul's point here is not that we can never question God. Uh, he doesn't mean that we can never question God. It's about how we question God. So there's a difference between uh, being a humble and submissive servant and coming before the Lord in humility uh, and asking honest questions, trying to understand God uh, and, and what he's doing in the world. There's a difference between that person and the one on the other hand who, who shakes his fist at God and says, uh, why did you do this? Uh, and will not bow down in humble submission to God's authority. And with the right attitude, uh, we can ask God why things are the way they are. Have any of you been asking God why things are the way they are this week? Uh, I bet you all have. Uh, with the right attitude, we can ask those questions. We can ask God to save our friends and our family. Uh, that's what prayer is when you think about it. When we pray, we acknowledge that God is sovereign. Uh, so we're not questioning his rule or his right to rule. We're just asking him to change the way he is ruling. 
And if we are humble servants in submission to God, we can talk to God like that. That's how Moses approached God. When Moses came to, to God, he, he took off his sandals because the place he was standing was holy ground. And, and Moses didn't argue with God. He humbled himself. But on the other hand, he was a thinking human being, right? And when God gave him a task he wasn't necessarily thrilled with, uh, Moses did say to God, uh, I don't want to go to Pharaoh, and I, I don't want to go talk to, the, to, to Pharaoh and, and, and talk about how we're going to, he's going to set uh, the Israelites free. Uh, I want no part of that. Uh, and at the same time, he complained bitterly about, the, after he did uh, lead them out of, of Egypt, he complained bitterly about the stubborn people that God had given uh, him, uh, that they would not listen, that they would not follow him, that they were always grumbling. And yet, uh, Moses was still God's man for the job, wasn't he? And, and over Moses' objection, uh, God used Moses because he, uh, he understood his relationship to God. But the man who, who talks back to God and says, why did you make me this way? That man is living in rebellion against God. Uh, and as I said last week, no one who comes to God humbly, uh, who confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness will ever be turned away by God. So come to God. There's no reason to be afraid to come to God. We come boldly before God, but we come with humility and submissiveness as well. Uh, we can pray for our problems. We can pray for the lost. We can pray for our country as long as we do it with the right attitude because God is not a genie in the bottle, right, that we rub and, and he grants us three wishes every time we ask. That's not who God is. He's the holy creator of the universe. He's in charge and we are just mere specks of dust. And so we have to recognize that we are sinful, uh, all of us sinful through and through. We are totally depraved. And so God has the right to show mercy to some on the one hand and to pass over whoever he wills on the other hand. And those he passes over are only being allowed to continue on a course that they have already chosen, as we will see in these next few verses. God is within his rights to appoint some to salvation while passing over others. <clears throat> what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, Paul anticipated that his readers were going to charge God with wrongdoing for this idea that he chooses some and not others. And these verses are not easy. But the gist of what Paul is saying here uh, is that if God has chosen to demonstrate his wrath against objects prepared for destruction and to make known uh, the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, God hasn't done anything wrong. He has the right to do what he wants with the clay. And so these verses are about who God is and, and how God chooses to receive glory. Uh, in both verses, verses 22 and 23, we see that in both verses, God is making himself known. In verse 22, he makes himself known to objects of wrath. In verse 23, he makes himself known by showing his glory to the objects of his mercy. So we see that there is a parallel between these two verses. So the objects of wrath. God is willing to show his wrath to them now, 
but he delays, he restrains himself because there is greater glory for God somehow in the delaying of divine wrath, divine judgment that will come at a later date. These rebels will receive God's wrath because they refuse to bow down to him and believe in Jesus for their salvation. Now it says in verse 22 that these uh, rebels were uh, prepared for destruction. It's interesting because in English, Uh, we see the word prepared in verse 22 and in verse 23. But those are two different words in the Greek. Uh, This word in verse 22 means that they were fitted for destruction. It doesn't say who fitted them for destruction, just that they were fitted for destruction, which is interesting because they may have fitted themselves for destruction uh, by the hardness of their hearts and because they would not turn to God for salvation. Or they may have prepared themselves for destruction in response to their hardened hearts. Uh, God prepares them for destruction is another option, Uh, but they will receive this uh, judgment. But the idea behind this, this idea of being prepared means that they are made ready and their preparation is complete. So they're, they're complete in their destruction. They're fully ready for destruction. Now in verse 23, The word for prepared is a different word. Uh, It means prepared in advance, which is a different word. It's the same word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where where God says that that these uh, believers were created in Christ for good works that God prepared in advance for them to do. So here, it's clearly God's doing uh, that these folks are going to be uh, recipients of his mercy. Uh, The word means that God has interrupted the natural course of all these sinners. All these sinners are headed toward destruction, but for some, God has altered their course and turned them in another direction and has prepared them in advance for, uh, to, to show these objects of mercy uh, his glory. And so God prepared his elect in advance to receive this mercy. And this is how God is going to make his power and his glory known to both the objects of his wrath on the one hand and the objects of his mercy on the other. And these are two different lumps of clay. So let's talk about these two different lumps of clay. Now, if you've ever been to a Dallas Cowboys game or a big concert maybe at, uh, at Jerry's World out there, you know what it's like to get into the building, right? There are thousands of cars and they're all headed for general parking and they're, they're, you're surrounded by countless other cars and you can't find a place to park. And if you're lucky, uh, you'll get to put 40 bucks in Jerry's pocket so you can uh, go park uh, somewhere in a lot if you're able to find uh, such a parking space. Uh, you're with the mass of humanity, right, headed for this general parking. But, but some cars, some cars seem to have special privileges, right? They, they show a pass or something, and then they get diverted uh, toward a special reserve parking lot that's close to the stadium. And I kind of think of God's election like that uh, in a way. Uh, all the cars are headed for general parking, but a few uh, have received special privileges. Now, all illustrations break down, of course. The people who park in that special lot probably are Jerry's family, or they paid a whole bunch of money to be able to park there uh, for that reserve spot. But for whatever reason, they're receiving this special treatment because some condition existed before they even left their house that is going to allow them to go to this special parking lot. And so it is with God's election. Uh, We're all on the same path. We're all on this path to destruction and hell. And that's a path 
of our own choosing. Ever since sin entered into the world, we're naturally opposed to God. We are sinners, uh, and by nature, we sin against God daily. We're hostile to him and his son, and we're naturally objects of God's wrath. And so we're all collectively this one lump of sinful clay. And yet, God chooses to work, uh, do a work beforehand in some of that clay. He, he cuts off one lump of clay, does a work beforehand in that clay, uh, and decides to treat that lump of clay differently. Last week, we talked about how Pharaoh hardened himself, and he received a judicial hardening from God as a consequence. And the people in Romans 1 did the same thing. They, although they knew God, they did not recognize him for who he was. They refused his love. They rebelled against his rule until God gave them over to the hardening that they desired. And so these two lumps of clay that God the potter has in his hands are the same sinful lump of humanity that God separated into two parts. And he did not prepare the one lump of clay to be sinful in advance. That would make God the author of sin. That would make him responsible for sin, which he is not. Adam sinned, and we sin, and we are responsible for it. And though God knows who are his elect, we prepare ourselves for destruction by our sin and our refusal to repent. So God would not be unjust to allow every single one of us to continue on this path to destruction that we have chosen for ourselves. But God chooses to be merciful to some of this whole lump of humanity that has prepared itself for destruction. And so he separates this one lump of clay into two and shows mercy to one lump. He does a special work in them, changing their hearts so that they will repent and turn back to him. He interrupts the course that they're on, heading for destruction, and turns them back toward him while leaving the rest of the lump on its way to the path that it chooses. Is God wrong to do that? Why does he blame us when he's the one pulling, his str pulling the strings? And again, we come to this conundrum of God's election. He does choose who are his, while at the same time, we are responsible for our choice. Remember the night of the Passover? Uh, God said to Moses, I am sending a plague on the firstborn of Egypt. And what are you to do, Moses? Moses, you tell your people, slaughter a lamb and you paint the doorposts with the lamb's blood and the plague will pass over your house and your children will be spared. Let me ask you, did God not know who was Israel and who was Egypt? Could God not distinguish between Israel and Egypt? Of course he could. What he required was an act of faith from the Israelites. Slaughter the lamb, paint the doorposts with the blood, and you will be saved. If they didn't do it, God would have been justified in striking them down. Think about Noah. God told Noah, you are my man, Noah. You are going to build this ark. I'm going to destroy the rest of humanity. Uh, God didn't just save Noah, did he? Uh, Noah had to build an ark. It took him more than a century to do it with people mocking him uh, the entire time. Uh, if Noah had not built the ark, what would have happened to Noah? Well, he would have drowned with the rest of them, right? It required an act of faith on Moses' part. 
So God elects, and yet we are still responsible to do what God commands us to do, and he commands us to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. So we don't have to understand uh, how all this works. We can't understand how all this works. We have finite human minds. We cannot understand God. So to try and understand how exactly election and our decision works together uh, is very difficult, and, and we don't have to be able to reconcile it for it to still be true. God held the Pharisees, the scribes, the people in Romans 1, Judas, and everyone who has not believed responsible because they refuse to repent and turn to him. So no one has the right to come to God and say, I couldn't choose you because you didn't choose me. God will never turn anyone away who comes to him asking for forgiveness of sin and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And he's well within his rights to condemn anyone who will not do so, even among the Jews, God's people. He's not wrong to do it. He's perfectly just in doing it. And now, none of this should have been at all surprising, as I said earlier, to any of the Jews who were familiar with their Old Testament scriptures, because the prophets Hosea and Isaiah predicted that God would save some Jews, but not all, and he would also bring in a large number of people who were not his originally, the Gentiles. So let's talk first about God's salvation of those who are not his people, uh, and that's in verses 24 through 26. Um, I'll just read it again because it starts in the middle of a sentence here. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, uh, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So Paul took uh, verses 24 uh, through 26 from Hosea chapters 1 and 2. And so let me just remind you of the context of Hosea, for those of you who have not been doing your morning devotionals lately, uh, in the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in the 8th century BC. The southern and northern kingdom had already split. Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom. And he prophesied during, or before and during the time that Assyria threatened and then conquered the northern kingdom. And so in Hosea 1, God told Hosea to marry Gomer, uh, the prostitute, and have children with her, even though she would desert him. Now, this marriage is allegorical. God represents Hosea, and Gomer represents sinful and rebellious Israel, who played the harlot against God. And there were to be children of this union. One daughter was to be named Lo-Ramaha, which means no pity, because God would no longer have pity on the house of Israel. And then there would be a son whose name was Lo-Ami, which means not my people, because Israel, by its harlotry, had forfeited its right to be God's people. And then after Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, the Jews intermarried uh, with these Assyrian Gentiles uh, to the extent that they had uh, so diluted themselves that they, ex they ceased to exist uh, ethnically and culturally anymore. 
uh, they became Samaritans. Uh, this is why the Jews hated them so much, because they interbred with these Samaritans. So they were half-breeds. They had become Gentiles. And nevertheless, God promised in Hosea chapter 2 that God would call a people who are not my people and call those loved who are not loved. And to those people, he would call them children of the living God. Now, Paul takes these verses out of Hosea and he applies them to the Gentiles that he's referencing here in Romans chapter 9. Uh, the Gentiles were not God's people by nature, right? In Ephesians, you'll remember, uh, Paul said, uh, speaking about the Gentiles, uh, you were once aliens and strangers. You were once separated from God, but now God has done something. He has brought you near. Uh, so Paul is not saying that, that the uh, Gentiles replaced Israel, uh, as we'll see later in Romans. He was saying that God called Gentiles as well as Jews, and he included them among his elect. And God is not wrong to do this. He is the potter and we are the clay. He has the right to do with us whatever he will. And then in verses 27 through 29, God now uses two quotes from Isaiah. Uh, and Paul said that though the Jews were God's chosen people, God would still only preserve a remnant of them. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Now, Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah and about a hundred years after Hosea prophesied. So by now, the northern kingdom had been conquered. It had been exiled. And the southern kingdom was on the verge of the Babylonian exile, where Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah testified that God would always preserve a remnant, but not that all Israel would be saved. Not all Israel will be saved. Paul said that in Romans 9, 6. He asked the question, has the word of God failed since not all of Israel will be saved? And Paul's argument that was that, Look, the word of God has not failed. In fact, it actually turns out exactly as the word of God had predicted it would. All they needed to do was to read Isaiah's prophecy to see that God's word had not failed. Uh, Paul quoted from Isaiah 10 in verses 27 to 28 here to make the point that, that the Jews, by and large, would not believe, but yet God would still preserve a remnant, uh, a subset of Israel that would believe. And then verse 29 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, God was gracious to preserve a remnant out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God always preserves a remnant. He did it in the Babylonian conquest. They were exiled, but some were allowed to return. He did it after the destruction of the temple in AD 70 uh, in Jerusalem. And even today, God is preserving a remnant but unless God acted mercifully, Israel would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed utterly uh, for its immorality to the extent that uh, scholars are not even positive today where Sodom and Gomorrah is. So utterly did God destroy it. And yet God preserved Lot and his two daughters. God always saves a remnant in Israel. 
So God is not wrong to, to, uh, to treat his creatures however he pleases. If he chooses not to save some, he's only allowing those to continue on this path that they have chosen for themselves. And as C.S. Lewis has famously said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, those uh, who say to God, thy will be done, right? Thy will be done. And then those instead whom God, because they refuse him, will say to thy will be done, and, and those will be the ones who perish. If he chooses to save any, it's because of his great love and mercy. Uh, don't forget that because of our sinful condition, God had to send his son to come and die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that anyone could be saved. And the cross is the proof of the unfathomable love of God, even though not all will be saved. He has the right to be merciful to some, even if he chooses not to be merciful to all. It's his house. He can paint it however he wants. So let's have a couple of applications. The first one is this. We need to learn to recognize God's right to rule. A king or a queen is called a sovereign because they have sole and unlimited authority. And when we say that God is sovereign, it's because his authority and rule is unlimited, although sadly, it's not always unchallenged. We want to put ourselves on the throne. We want to tell God how we ought to rule and how we ought to govern. But the best way to enjoy a harmonious relationship with God, assuming that you've already been saved and you've made peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, is to let him govern the way he will. His plans are much better than ours. Now, what have we seen this week? This past week, we've seen two Senate elections in Georgia that did not necessarily go the way we might have liked. And we've seen the certification of the presidential election, which may not have gone exactly the way we wanted. So it's hard. Uh, we may question God. We may say, God, what are you up to? Why are you allowing these things? And we may be fearful of what is next, but we still have to allow God to be God. And as I said earlier, it's okay to come before him humbly uh, in submission, asking him and praying, but it's not okay to shake your fist at God and, and challenge his right to rule. We have to allow God to be God and accept whatever comes from his hand. That's true in how he governs the world, and it's true in who he chooses to save. We have no right to challenge him. But at the same time, even though God is sovereign, he also answers prayer, which is amazing that he blesses us, loves us enough to be attentive to our prayers. So keep praying for the country. Keep praying for the lost. God can save anyone from the penalty of their sins. If I could be saved, and if you could be saved, then anyone can be saved, right? I mean, I know for myself, I was a long, long way from God when God did something in me, and many of you have the same testimony. Prayer works. There is no one beyond his reach. Uh, and maybe it is that, that so many people will come to God uh, as a result of all the circumstances that are happening in the world, that we're going to have a revival in this country, and God will be glorified. A revival happens one person at a time. And so uh, we tell somebody, that person believes, that person tells somebody, and they believe, and all of a sudden we have a revival on our hands. And so if you happen to be within the sound of my voice and you're not somebody who believes, well, I would just say to you, that's going to be on you. You have the right 
and you have the ability to ask God for salvation. No one is beyond his reach. No one is excluded. Even though God elects all who come to him with a humble and submissive heart, a God will save. So confess your sin. Ask him today for salvation and it will be done. Don't blame God that you're not saved. That's not going to be a good excuse when you stand before him someday. So, If you are hearing my voice and you have not yet been saved, I pray that you'll pray that prayer to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And whether you do it today or whether you have been a Christian for 50, 60, 70 years, uh, we bow down humbly and thank the Lord for his provision in Jesus Christ so that any one of us can be saved. And we praise the Lord God for his grace and his mercy. Amen? Amen? Lord God, what a difficult topic. And yet at the same time, Lord, just let it be salted with the concept of your love, Lord, that none of us deserves to be saved. And the only reason we can be saved is because of the death of your own son on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, Lord. Let us not question your fairness, your justice, Lord, let us just bow humbly before you and receive the gift of salvation with grace and ask how we might live out our days in service to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.